Hi, my name is Nicole Hager, and I am so glad that you guys are all here to study the book of James with us. I know these past 11 months have been really, really hard um, for all of us. It's been almost a year into this global pandemic, and I think a lot of us are just really feeling disconnected. We're disconnected to the church body because we've been quarantined off and on. Um, we're disconnected to other women, and um, I think it's just really, really left its mark. And so I've got a couple of different goals in mind as we go through this study together. My first goal or my first hope is that by studying the Word of God together and discussing it through the group me that we started up and the Zoom um, meetings that we're going to have every other week, that through those things, we're going to really start to feel a little bit more connected to each other again. I really hope that this is the last time we have to do this virtually. We would have much rather done this in person. Um, and we're really hoping that the next time we do one of these, that it will be in person, um, hopefully in the fall. Um, but now, since we're still kind of navigating COVID as COVID kind of starts to wind down, we're doing our best to structure the study in a way that's going to start fostering those relationships so that we can start feeling more connected to one another. So I really hope that everybody here participates um, in the group me and, and starts to comment on there a little bit more. Thank you so much to everybody who has been commenting. Um, and I really hope that everybody participates in the Zoom calls um, because we need each other, guys. Studying the, studying the Bible is hard, but just um, walking through the Christian life is hard. And so we really need one another. So I pray and hope that through this Bible study and the, the avenues that we've created for you all to connect with one another, that we will start to um, kind of rekindle some of those connections uh, with each other again. Um, my other goals are that, um, first of all, that we're going to learn more about the book of James. That should be obvious. Um, I really hope that we all leave here really understanding the main themes and the main points that James is trying to tell his audience and that we are supposed to take from it as well. Um, but that I also hope that we're going to, um, through this study, that we're going to gain better tools that we can apply as we study any book of the Bible. Um, I said the same thing in the when we studied um, Judges last semester, and I still feel this way. I feel I hear so often that um, from you guys that studying the Bible on your own is hard, and I get it. It is hard. It's hard to approach the Bible and to know what questions to ask and how to think about certain things. Um, I really feel strongly that when we do Bible studies, that we shouldn't leave that Bible study and just think, that was so great. I can't wait to do another one. Um, but I feel like there should be that element of, that was great, and I feel a little bit more equipped and prepared um, and empowered to study the Bible on my own. I feel like I have a little bit more tools and experience in my tool belt that I know how to think and analytically about scripture. So I really hope and pray that um, we all leave here just with a little bit more um, um, comfort level with as we approach the Bibles on our own. So as we do that, there's a basic study method that I hope that we all can start to feel more and more comfortable with. It's called the CIA method. This is not something I thought of. This is something that I've learned from a lot of different places. It's a pretty popular one. Um, but what it stands for is the C is for comprehension, the I is for interpretation, and the A is for application. And so comprehension is basically just looking at the text and saying, what does this say? Interpretation is looking at the text and saying, well, what does that mean? And then application is then asking, how should this change me? And I want you guys all to notice that application comes last. We all love application. As I think all of us, we have a tendency to come to the Bible and want to open it to whatever we're reading that day and then just immediately jump to, how does this apply to my life? And that's an important question and we should be asking it, but not until we've gone through steps to be sure that we've done these other two things first. 
Have we taken the time to make sure that we truly understand what the text is actually saying? And then have we truly taken the time to think analytically about what that really means before we start to apply it? Because when we don't do these other two steps first, we run the risk of either misapplying scripture to our lives because we don't know what it's actually trying to say, or we start to have shallow application. And so I think that when we take the time to really um, develop our ability to, to practice comprehension and interpretation, our application is going to start to get a lot more um, deep and rich, and it'll change us a little bit more than it would have otherwise. So in the homework and in the discussion questions, we're going to be spending maybe a little bit more time on those comprehension and interpretation steps than maybe we're comfortable with or than we even like. Um, but I hope that you'll find that by doing that, when we do get to those application steps, our application is going to be so much deeper and richer. Um, so if you look at your homework, I'm going to kind of show you how some of this has played out. We did a chart that we filled out together, and I want you to notice that the whole left side of that chart that's completely comprehension. We basically made sure that we understood what the text was saying. We observed all the topics that James brought up. Um, then the right side of that same chart is completely interpretation. We started asking the question, what could it mean that these are the topics that James addressed? So we were really practicing the comprehension step and the interpretation step, and we haven't even kind of gotten to the application yet. Um, and then again, underneath that chart, we kind of practice these skills again because I have a series of three questions underneath your chart. Um, and if you'll look closely, those three questions are a very simple and straightforward example of the CIA method. Because first, we did comprehension. That first question is a comprehension question. We noticed the topics that James addressed the most. That was just an observation. We're asking, what is it saying? This is what he addressed the most. Then that second question was completely interpretation because we were asking what it meant. And then finally, that third question was finally application when we started to ask, how should we be changed by those same topics? Um, these steps, they might seem strange at first, or they might seem a little bit stretching. We might not know how to make the right observations at first, and that's okay. Um, my hope is that the more we practice it, the more natural they're going to feel. You're reflecting a new muscle in our mind when we start practicing making good observations and then asking what those observations mean. Like when you go to the gym, you're not going to all of a sudden start lifting heavy weights at the very beginning, but you're going to have somebody teach you and train you on how to work your muscles the right way, and you're going to build up bigger weights as you go. The same is true when we're studying the Bible. We're flexing these new um, interpretive skills in our brains, and so at first it's going to be hard, and we're going to need somebody to walk us through how to make good observations and that's fine the more that you do it though the more it's going to start to come naturally and you're going to start to have um um, more significant observations than you would have before uh, so the more we practice using these skills the more natural they're going to become so that kind of um, sums up my goals as we study the book of james um, my goals are that we'd become more connected to one another um, that we would grow in our knowledge of the book of james and then also that we would develop better study habits and that we would grow in our ability to study the Bible in general. So now that we've kind of laid out the goals for the study, let's go ahead and dive into the book. I'm really, really excited to kind of dive in here with you guys. Um, how would we describe the book of James? I was reading a book to my five-year-old son a few weeks ago. And there was a part in this book that just made me stop and think, oh my gosh, this completely makes me think of the book of James. 
Um, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with the Dog Man series. Uh, it's kind of a series of books for little kids. Um, and they're kind of like comic books, but they're kind of big, thick chapter books. And the main character is a guy called Dog Man. In the first book, what happens is there's this cop, a police officer, and he has a dog. And there's this evil cat that doesn't really like this cop and his dog. And so he kind of puts out a bomb, and he and it, the bomb explodes. And so the cop and the dog have to go to the hospital. And the doctor's like, oh, no, cop, your head is dying. Oh, no, dog, your body's dying. And then they're like, I know. Let's put the dog's head on the cop's body. And therefore is how cop, uh, Dog Man was born. So this is quality literature right here, you guys. Um, but, you know, he takes kind of classic literature and applies the same storylines and kind of deep concepts to give to these kids. And so this particular book, Dog Man was scared. He was kind of trying to fight this villain. There was this villain kind of causing, ha wreaking havoc in the city. But Dog Man was scared. So he's hiding under this trash can. And there's this little kitten who's like a main character in all these books. And he's kind of like the very perfect good guy or whatever and he's adorable so he comes up to dog man and he's like dog man you have to do something um every you know the city's going to be destroyed you have to do something and dog man is kind of shaking under this trash can and then the kitten says dog man look at this city it is full of good people but nobody's doing anything it's not enough just to be good you have to do good and I just thought, oh, my gosh, like that is kind of a, a pretty deep topic for, you know, my five year old. But it's, it sparked some great conversation with us. But also it kind of reminded me a little bit about what James is saying, because it's kind of like throughout the book of James, he's saying, guys, it's not enough just to call yourself a Christian. Sure, you can claim the righteousness of Christ, but if it's not producing anything with you within you then it's empty. There's nothing really there to speak of. Like it's not enough to just say you have the righteousness of Christ, but then not have any actions that flow from it. It's not enough just to be a Christian. You have to act like a Christian. And so um, obviously it's um, a little bit, you know, deeper coming from the book of James than it is from Dog Man. But I think that it seems like a fairly straightforward and simple concept, this idea that who we are should affect how we act. Um, I think that most people would not argue with the fact that like, yeah, it makes sense that there's a book of the Bible that calls us to have actions that match who we are as Christians. Um, so it kind of might surprise you to know that the book of James is a pretty controversial book of the Bible. There's a lot of theologians who really don't like it and they kind of don't, there's been some who don't even think it belongs in the Bible at all. Um, this is so prevalent that even the great reformer, Martin Luther, who's kind of responsible for churches like ours today, he kind of was responsible, the father of the Great Reformation, um, he was kind of famous for calling the book of James an epistle of straw. He did not like the book of James at all, and he kind of felt like it belonged in sort of a second class of scripture. He had a couple of books of the Bible that he kind of wanted to move to the back, and James was one of them, and he kind of didn't consider it primary scripture, but more secondary scripture. Um, there's been periods of history when the book of James's validity as scripture has been seriously questioned by multiple scholars. And it's so strange because at the same time, it's one of the most loved and quoted books of the Bible by Christians. It's one of the more popular books of the Bible to teach within churches. So how can this be? Like, how does this happen? Why is it so controversial? How can one short letter be so loved by so many normal everyday Christians, but so rejected by so many scholars and theologians at the same time? Well, there's two main issues that tend to cause debate about the, around the book of James. The first of these issues kind of flows out of the fact that it's a book that is so practical in nature. Um, James focuses so much on how we should live, on what we should be doing. It is packed full of imperatives. 
It actually has more imperative verbs than any other book of the New Testament. It's instructing us on what our actions should look like as followers of Christ. But that's not exactly where the controversy lies. That's that's pretty normal. But really, the controversy comes because James is so focused on how we should act as Christians that he makes some really bold statements. He makes statements like the one in chapter 2 that says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now that is a bold statement to make. And he makes this one along with a few other similar statements um, throughout the letter. And that's, those kind of statements are where people tend to really get their feathers ruffled because it kind of seems to be in direct opposition to a lot of Paul's teaching and Paul's letters, which are other books of the Bible in the New Testament. And in Paul's letters, which are other, these other books of the Bible, these other epistles, Paul tends to stress the point that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. Now, a lot of people have felt that James has this heavy focus on works, and it's almost a little bit anti-gospel, and it doesn't really belong in the Bible, because how can we say that faith is dead without works, but then also say that we're saved by faith alone and not works? It feels so contradictory. I mean, Jesus himself throughout the Gospels is constantly calling out the Pharisees because they were so focused on works and the law, and they were so legalistic. Um, And so, like, you know, a lot of the New Testament, like combating this empty religion of the Pharisees, the New Testament stresses over and over again that we are not saved by works, but faith alone. And this here, this little contradiction or big contradiction, I should say, is the number one reason that the book of James has found itself under so much scrutiny from scholars for centuries. It kind of brings up this whole debate of legalism and what really must we do to be saved? Now, the other issue is that at first glance, it kind of seems a little bit like Jesus is absent in the letter, because if you read it closely, you're going to see that he's only mentioned two times, like the name of Jesus is only found in the book of James twice. And that seems strange because the rest of the New Testament is completely filled with the name of Jesus. And that kind of leads us to ask, so what do we do now with this book? What do we do with this book that barely mentions Jesus? And it kind of seems like it's pointing back to legalism because it's heavily focused on works. Well, we're going to do a little exercise. It's called reading the envelope. And it's going to give us a framework that I really think is going to help us answer these questions. And then after we do this exercise, we're going to circle back around to these two issues that people have with the book of James. Once we have kind of a greater understanding of the context in which James was written. So the exercise that we're going to do is called reading the envelope. And I kind of had you do this in your homework. It was kind of the questions of just finding some context. Um, The idea is when you get a letter in the mail, you know a lot about what's inside that letter before you even open it because of the information that you can find on the envelope. The envelope tells you who the letter is to, who it is from, where and when it was written, because you can find that on the post stamp in the corner. And then it kind of tells you, based on the way that it looks, kind of the genre, if you will, of the letter. It tells you, is this a bill? Is this a letter from a friend that's been handwritten? Is this um, junk mail? Is this Are people trying to get me to buy something? And so you take in all that information kind of without even realizing it before you open your mail. And knowing what the envelope tells you kind of puts your mind in the in like a mindset to be ready to accept the information you're about to get. Well, we can kind of apply that same reasoning to when we're reading a book of the Bible, because when we kind of get the answer, those same questions that you would find on an envelope, when we answer those same questions about a book of the Bible, again, the same way that our mind is ready to read what we take out of an envelope because of what the envelope told us, our mind can be more ready to take the information in a book of the Bible when we answer these same kind of questions. So we're going to take some time 
and try to find um, the answer to some of these questions, but I wanted to do it with a little bit more than a simple answer. Um, it would be really easy to go through these questions and get simple answers, and it would take less than five minutes. Like, who wrote the book? James. Who do you write it to? The church. When? Well, before James died, which was in AD 62. Boom, we're done. But, I mean, really, how helpful would that actually be? Like, if I had a piece of paper in my hands and I said, hey, this is a letter. Betty wrote it to friend Lou, and she wrote it in 1943, and then I handed it to you. Does that really give you any context in which to process the meaning of the letter? Like, did that mean anything to you at all? Not really. It's just names of people that you don't know, and you don't know anything about them. So it really doesn't give you anything that's going to help. But what if instead I kind of gave you a little bit bigger picture about the who and the what and the where, and I said, hey, my grandmother Betty, she was a nurse during World War II, and she lost two of her sons in the war, and she wrote this letter to those sons. Their names were Fred and Lou, and they were really scared and hesitant to fight, but they went anyway, and she wrote this letter in 1943, which was after they had been away at war for two years, and she wasn't sure if they were still alive, but she had just heard that this large battle had been reported in the newspapers. Now, if I give you that kind of context, which is answering the same question, but with a lot more detail, then all of a sudden we start to have some context in which to actually filter the information we're about to get. We're going to be able to read that letter and see what's coming from a place of grief. What is her being scared? What is her trying to comfort her sons? Why did she say this? Well, this was a situation. That's probably why she said it. And now all of a sudden it gives us eyes to see and um, interpret what we're about to read correctly. Um, also just side note that I do not actually have a grandmother named Betty. This was, <laughs> this is not a real life situation here, but this was just purely for the example. So what I want us to do now is we're going to read the envelope for the book of James, but I want us to do it with as many details as possible. I kind of challenged you guys to find a little bit more than just the name and the date and, and whatnot. But right now we're going to go even further and I'm going to try to really fill in a lot of details so that we can have the best framework possible in which to jump in to study the book of James in the coming weeks. Um, so we're going to kind of answer those same questions in your homework, um, but hopefully I'll fill in some gaps maybe for some of you or all of you. So we're going to start with who wrote the book. Well, obviously the book is called James. We kind of know from the book itself that the author's name is James, but which James is it? James who? Uh, well, tradition kind of holds that this was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, there's been a couple of scholars here and there who have argued that it was a different James, but the majority of people are pretty confident that there's sufficient evidence that this was Jesus' half-brother who wrote this book. So even though we can't be 100% certain, that's the view we're going to be taking in this study, is that this was James, the half-brother of Jesus. So what do we know about this James? Well, um, he was not a believer while Jesus was actually alive. Um, you know, it's like the whole idea of like you're, um, that you grow up with somebody. It's kind of hard if your brother suddenly still starts telling you he's a son of God. I mean, you're probably the one who's the least likely to believe him, right? So he was not a believer while Jesus was alive. But then after Jesus' resurrection, James encounter, encounters him. And after that experience of encountering Jesus resurrected, then James fully believed. Um, and I think that when, again, like it's the hardest, I think, to have your siblings or put somebody in your immediate family uh, believe, I think, you know, if you were to claim to be the son of God. And the fact that he is the one believing, that is very significant for the half-brother of Jesus to believe um, fully that he is the son of God. And then after that, uh, James became a very prominent leader in the early mother church in Jerusalem after the death of Christ. Um, we kind of see in the book of Galatians, Paul actually calls James one of the pillars of the church. Um, he was a leader in this mother church of Jerusalem, which meant that he was ministering to mostly Jewish Christians. There wouldn't have been a ton of Gentiles there at this point, this early on. Um, so he would have been surrounded by people who were very familiar with Jewish law. 
Now, he hadn't had a bit of a reputation. He was kind of known as James the Just because he placed a really high value on observing the Jewish law. But he definitely didn't believe or ever claim that the law was necessary for salvation. And ironically, he was eventually even stoned to death by the Jews because he violated the law um, in AD 62. So because of all of this, we know that the letter had to be written before that time, before AD 62. Most scholars believe that it was written kind of in the middle 40s. Um, that would have been after Paul's teaching had begun to spread. Because remember, we talked about in the beginning of this that, you know, Paul's teachings seem very contradictory to what James is writing. So um, we're going to kind of circle back around to this later. But they really do believe that this letter was probably written after Paul's teachings had begun to spread, but probably before James and Paul would have met each other face to face, which happened, we kind of read about this in Acts. There's this thing called the Apostolic Council that happens in Acts. And that's when James and Paul would have met face to face and they would have been able to maybe talk through some of this stuff. Um, but so the fact that, you know, the way that the book is written leads a lot of people to believe that this is kind of the context. It was after Paul's teachings had started to circulate before they had met. Um, and then as far as the audience, who the book was written to, a lot of other New Testament books were written to specific churches or specific individuals in specific cities. But James is a little bit different. It's written to a more broad audience. It was written to all Jewish Christians who had been scattered outside of their homeland. Now, the Jewish Christians at this time, they would have been scattered probably because of some form of persecution they were facing. Um, how do we know that this, who was writing, that, this is, that this is who he was writing to? Uh, well, we kind of have a pretty clear um, hint in verse 1 of chapter 1 because he addresses his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So he's basically saying to all of the 12 tribes of Israel who have been scattered about. Um, so we, we kind of even have this backed up in history, like outside of the Bible, because we know throughout history that large groups of Jewish people have been forced to scatter their homeland of Israel for, for multiple reasons and on multiple times. Um, and that's something that would have been happening at the time that he wrote this letter. So he's writing to this audience of Jewish Christians who have been scattered because of persecution from their homeland. Um, now, noticing that he is writing to Jewish people who had been scattered from their homeland. So these people, they were living as aliens in other lands. So basically they had left their homeland because of one form of persecution, only now to face new forms of persecution as aliens in foreign lands. So their situation of kind of being displaced, that kind of meant that most of them were probably in positions of poverty. They were probably having to rely on the wealthy and the powerful in all of these new lands for survival as they worked for them. I mean, think of refugees today. Like when somebody has to flee their home and not really get to take anything with them, I mean, they typically aren't in these positions of power, even if they were before. And they're probably not in a position of wealth, even if they were before. So it makes sense then that James would be addressing, addressing and throughout his letter, tries and trials and persecution, because that is what his audience was experiencing. They were probably experiencing a lot of trials and a lot of persecution based on the fact that they were displaced um, from their home and having to rely on um, these other people groups for their survival. At this time in history, there was a lot of famine. There was a lot of economic distress. It was really common for rich people to buy up land and then make farmers work the land under really poor terms because really the farmers didn't really have any other options. They kind of had to take what they could get. So this was the situation that a lot of displaced Jewish Christians found themselves in. And this is also going to shed some light on how we should read a lot of James's statements about the rich versus the poor, because his audience would have primarily been described as poor because of their displaced status. There would have been some wealthy Christians at the time. Not all of them would have been poor, but probably the majority of them would have been poor and struggling because of um, the dispersion. 
Another thing that makes the audience's situation difficult is they're in these new lands, but they're still trying to maintain their Christian beliefs while immersed in these non-Christian cultures. And these are kind of new beliefs for them. This isn't like, you know, beliefs like Jesus just died recently. And so they haven't had generations to kind of build upon um, this new Christian belief. And so they're trying to maintain these new Christian beliefs immersed in these other non-Christian cultures. And we learned really clearly last semester, we studied the book of Judges, and we saw really closely and clearly what happens when God's people surround themselves by other people groups who are worshiping false gods and false idols. They quickly start to worship those false gods and false idols too. And I would argue that we all struggle with the same thing today, surrounded by people You know, it looks different in our day and age, but um, I I think that the heart of it is still there because it's so easy to leave our own beliefs and convictions behind and conform to the world around us. So when you add all of these things together, you can see that these uh, Jewish Christians that James is writing to are in one difficult situation after another. So naturally, James is trying to give them the encouragement that they need not to stray from the one true source of all provision and all comfort and all truth. As far as the genre, um, the genre of this book is an epistle, which is basically a fancy word that means letter. Um, We've kind of already stated this, but this is a letter that James had written to Jews who had become Christians. But let's take a minute to talk about the letter itself, though. James's writing style has kind of frustrated a lot of people because you guys might have noticed this. It really feels super disjointed. He kind of feels like he's jumping from topic to topic, and he's not really going into a whole lot of depth on any of them. And at first glance, it kind of feels like there's not a whole lot of organization to his thoughts. He seems a little bit all over the place. Um, But on the upside of that, though, because he has all these points in the letter that are so concise and cover so many topics, it's kind of full of these incredibly quotable one-liners. They all pack a punch that are really, really helpful. And this is part of what makes the book so popular. Um, James is really great at metaphors and he's great at illustrations. So his points are really easy to grasp and easy to remember. Um, And those things also make a lot of people feel that his writing is really similar to the book of Proverbs and some other wisdom literature that would have been prevalent at the time. Because remember, as a Jewish person, he would have been um, growing up very familiar with Proverbs and these other wisdom literature. And so it makes sense that um, because he had grown up learning and knowing scripture, especially things like Proverbs, he would have been really familiar with these books and in the book of James, you know, like we that kind of comes out. People kind of have compared it a lot to Proverbs. We kind of have, because of that, sort of a double genre, because a lot of people consider the book of James to be wisdom literature, the same way that Proverbs is considered wisdom literature. So the genre is wisdom literature along with epistle. So he's writing this letter that's full of practical wisdom that's meant to encourage believers and to remind them of what to do or of how to live. And then as far as where does the book of James fit into the overarching biblical narrative, Well, it takes place after the death of Christ, um, and it's kind of thought to be probably the earliest epistle written in the New Testament. It was written when the church was still very, very young. All right, so that gives us a really good picture of what to work with. You might be asking, why is this necessary? Why do we need so much context? Is it really important to read the envelope and to do this exercise? Why can't we just jump into chapter one? Well, when it comes to scripture, every book of the Bible has two authors and it has two audiences. There's always an earthly author to every book and there's always a heavenly author. There's also always an original intended audience that is the specific people that the earthly author wrote to or wrote for. And then there's a universal audience, which is all believers who are ever going to read it as part of scripture. And that includes us. So I'm going to say that again, because this is really important. 
every text has two authors and two audiences. A human author wrote this text for a specific audience for a specific time. And then also at the same time, God by his Holy Spirit wrote the text for all people for all time. And this is a really important thing to grasp because part of developing biblical literacy is Bible literacy is learning how to differentiate between what parts of the Bible are meant for a specific people during a specific time, during a specific situation, and what is meant to be applied to all believers for all time. Because what's hard about this is, is there's not always clear answers. And scholars disagree all the time on different issues if it was meant to be for all people for all time or just for that audience. Um, I mean, take spiritual gifts, for example. There's some spiritual gifts that people don't know what to do with, like speaking in tongues and prophecy. And there is a lot of really smart scholars who would say that was for a specific people for a specific time, and those gifts don't exist anymore. That does not apply to us. Then there's a lot of other really smart scholars who would say, no, that is for all people for all times, and we are still supposed to be doing those things. Um, and so I really want one of the things that would make me so happy is if people um, who do this study would start to practice that idea of learning what is meant for what did this original audience, what was the original author saying to the original audience, because these kind of exercises help us to get in the mind space where we can start to understand the original earthly author and the original intended audience and practice asking the question, what is meant for them and what is meant for all? it's not an easy thing to do. So I want us to start getting comfortable forming our own opinions based on a close examination and study of the text instead of always relying on what other people's conclusions have been. So now that we've done this whole exercise, we're going to come back to the two areas of debate, debate or contention with the book of James. Let's start with the easier one. We're going to talk about the fact that James only mentions the name of Jesus twice in the letter. Well, just because he isn't named often, it does not mean that he isn't there. In fact, a lot of people have noted that James relies on the teaching of Jesus more than any other New Testament writer. So much of what James says in his letter is directly paralleling the teachings of Jesus, which makes sense because, remember, he was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with him. He would have been so much more immersed in the things that Jesus talked about than so many other people. And so it's like he was so immersed in what he was saying all the time that it just kind of naturally flows out of him without him feeling the need to reference or quote him. Um, one commentator wrote that James says less about the master than any other writer in the New Testament, but his speech is more like that of the master than the speech of any of them. So again, just because he's only mentioned twice, that certainly does not mean that Jesus is not there. And we're going to spend a lot of time in the coming weeks identifying just how prevalent the teachings of Jesus are in the letter, whether he's mentioned or not. Now let's move on to the harder of these issues. Paul, who's going on and on about grace alone, grace alone, but then James coming in saying, you have to have works. Well, how do we reconcile this? Well, we're going to take what we know from reading the envelope. We know that James was a Jewish Christian writing to Jewish Christians, and they were all well acquainted with the law. They had most likely seen the law abused constantly by Pharisees and other people who used it to condemn each other. And they had been experiencing firsthand the weight of trying to live under the law, and it was hard. And now here's this guy, Paul, going around teaching, hey, you're saved by faith alone. You're not bound to the law anymore. Uh, your works are not what save you. And how freeing would that have been to a Jewish reader? Um, so there's this radical new message going around. And there was most likely a lot of people who really misunderstood its meaning. And a lot of false teachings would have easily begun to spread. Because remember, 
this would have been incredibly good news. It would have been easy to grasp onto this idea that you don't have to do anything, but then not, and then kind of miss the whole point of the gospel. So these false teachings were probably beginning to spread based on this radical new um, um, message that Paul was preaching. Now, because Paul and James seem so contradictory to one another, it's likely that one of them is responding to false teachings that got twisted up by the other one, or not by the other one, but from what the other one had said. Like commentator, the con- a commentator Douglas Moo, he states that either each of them is unaware of what the other is saying, or one of them is responding to a misunderstood form of the other's theology. Most scholars think the latter is the case and that James is reacting to a misunderstood Paulinism. So basically, Paul's out there. So he's basically what Douglas Moo is saying, that either neither of them are aware of what the other's teaching, and so they're just kind of both doing their own thing, which is probably not likely, or one of their teachings is getting distorted and the other one's trying to correct it. And so most likely, Paul's teaching this freeing message that we're saved by faith alone, which is true. But people took that truth and distorted it into something that it wasn't meant to mean. And now James is responding to that distortion. A lot of you guys have probably heard the term legalism. Legalism is basically when you put all sorts of rules on Christians that are not actually required of us. Now, the other side of that coin, though, is called license. And that's the idea that we can call ourselves a Christian, but then do whatever we want. And neither of those is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while Paul's teachings help stomp out legalism, James's teachings help stomp out license. Their teachings are not opposed to each other. Rather, they work in harmony with each other. They protect against the two extremes that people tend to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul explains clearly in some of his letters how a person is saved, which is by faith alone. Now, James doesn't doesn't dispute that because in his letter, he's not telling people how they are saved. He's telling people what a person will look like if they are saved. He's telling them what comes out of a person when they have the Holy Spirit. Basically, James is giving us a picture of what a true believer looks like. Let's think about this in a little bit of a different context in in case you're still having a hard time understanding the difference here. Um, For those of you guys who don't know me, I'm a photographer. That's what I do for work. That's how I make a living. Um, So what if you were, imagine you're meeting me for the first time and I told you, uh, you asked me, hey, what do you do for work? And I said, oh, I'm a photographer. Well, you might ask me something like, oh, cool. What kind of camera do you use? Well, what if my answer to that was, well, I mean, I don't really have a camera. You might be like, oh, well, you don't have a camera. Well, how do you take pictures? And then what if I were to say, well, I don't, I don't actually take pictures. You may be like, oh, well, have you ever taken pictures? And then if I were to say, no, you know, I've never actually taken a picture. But, you know, I just know that I'm a photographer. Like, that's just in my heart of hearts. I just know that that's what I am. Now, imagine you're going to go over to somebody else and you say, hey, I just met this girl, Nicole. And if they were to ask, oh, what does she do? You'd probably say something like, well, she says she's a photographer, but I don't really think she is because she doesn't do anything that a photographer does. Like, it just wouldn't really make any sense at all. Because we get this concept that there's basic things or basic actions that come along with certain titles. Um, Now, what James is doing is telling us what those things are that come along with the title of being a Christian. What what should be coming out of us if we are going to call ourselves a Christian? If we have the Holy Spirit, what is that going to produce in us? I want you to pay really close attention over the coming weeks, what things that he mentions and what are the things that he doesn't. Because I think a lot of times we look at the wrong things to determine whether or not we're living faithfully or not. I mean, does James saying in his letter that a person with true faith only listens to Christian music? Guys, I've literally heard people say they feel like they're doing pretty good because they're only listening to Christian music. Like I've actually heard that statement before. 
Um, is James saying that someone with genuine faith is only going to talk about Jesus when he's on Facebook or Instagram because he likes to make people get mad? Uh, no, he's not saying that. Is James saying that genuine faith produces people with lots of crosses on their wall or people who put Bible verses on their clothing and their butt, their coffee mugs? Like, no. Is James focusing on any of those things? I know these are ridiculous kind of silly examples, but the point is James is focusing on actions that are so much deeper, things that are so incredibly difficult that we simply cannot do them without the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Like think back to my example about being a photographer. What if somebody were to come to you and and say, oh, you're a Christian. That's so cool. Like, you know, when you go through hard stuff, how does God show up for you? Like, would you say, well, you know, God doesn't really show up for me. I mean, that doesn't really happen. And they would say, oh, well, like, so when you go through times of trial and struggle, like, you know, does he bring you comfort? No, he doesn't really comfort me. Like, that would not make any sense. That person would probably go and say, well, they say they're a Christian, but I don't really know what that means to them. Like, it doesn't really make sense. Um, so we, we're going to see, like, it's going to be very deep things and very meaningful things that James is going to focus on. And we, we tend to look at the wrong things. Like we tend to look too often at the complete wrong things to determine if we're living faithfully or not. I think that when we really look at what James is telling his audience, we're going to be truly challenged. We're going to be really incredibly convicted and we're going to be changed if we allow ourselves to fully take in what James has to say for us. Guys, if we are truly Christians, if we truly have the Holy Spirit living within us, we're going to act like it. Being a Christian does not mean that we can claim Christ or we can claim his holiness or that we can claim our reward of eternal life in heaven, but then live however we want and give him no authority in our lives. That does not make sense. And I pray that as we study the book of James over the coming weeks, that we're going to truly submit to his lordship over our lives and that we're going to be changed by it. We're going to see this outward fruit that comes from following him, just like James encouraged his readers to. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for the book of James. I thank you so much for all the practical wisdom within it. And I thank you so much that um, that you are going to challenge us through this book to examine our actions, to examine our lives and ask ourselves the tough questions. Am I truly living as a Christian um, is supposed to live? And so, God, I just pray for most of all the presence of your Holy Spirit um, within each of us individually, within our small groups as we discuss, with our uh, in our groups, then um, our large group as a whole, and, and just in our church body, that your spirit would be present and that you'd be leading us and guiding us into all truth and understanding, Lord. I pray that you'd become more and more real in our lives to us and that we would um, just be conformed more into your image, Lord. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.